in terms of overall uh, statistics, it's very unlikely in Australia that when you wind up a company that the directors will face any form of post-appointment action. It's very unlikely. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 365 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, Ben Sewell of Sewell and Cattle in Sydney, an insolvency lawyer, went through the first 10 questions in a list of 19 for you to ask when your clients struggle to pay their debts or when it is your business who's struggling to pay their debts. Today, let's cover the remaining nine questions. Here's Ben Sewell of Sewell and Cattle in Sydney. Question 11. How big is the tax debt? How big is the tax debt? Okay, so it's likely that if you're acting for a client who is insolvent, the largest credit they have is, is the ATO. It's the creditor that uh, the PAYG tax debt, the GST tax debt, the income tax debt. And so if the client of yours has let their debt slide and they've just allowed debt to increase, you think that they'll have to pay their employees. You think they're going to have to pay their key suppliers that actually supply them whatever they need to run every day. And that the credit that they're going to let slide on terms is likely to be the ATO. And um, the tax debts could be relatively large depending on the the number of employees they have, depending on whether they've got GST supply, or whether the product they sell or the service they sell is subject to GST. Tax debts can build up very fast and they can get out of control. So the amount of the ATO debt is critical because if it's over a million dollars, obviously the small business restructuring's out. If they've been non-compliant, and what I mean by that is 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 they haven't uh, been diligently filing their tax returns, they they may have inadvertently upset the ATO or they may put themselves at risk of a uh, direct penalty because of non-compliance. So one thing about the ATO is is that it has its own set of rules in terms of how it deals with insolvent SMEs. Some of the time they mightn't vote. So if you go through an administration process and they're happy with the uh, the taxpayers' compliance, they may decide to abstain from uh, the vote. So that would be important information to know. Whereas if you haven't been, if the client hasn't been compliant, they may just vote against an administration process just because of the non-compliance. If you're doing a prepack or you're doing some sort of informal restructure process, it's unlikely that the the ATO is going to um, going to intervene. But on the other hand, if you're involved in some sort of phoenix where you're basically doing asset stripping and you're moving um, assets from one company to um, another, the one creditor that's most likely to take action out of all of them is going to be the ATO. So it can be a militant at some times. Uh, number eight was already what's the size of the debt, but that was just to see whether the uh, small business restructure applies or not, correct? So now under number 11, we specifically ask about the tax debt. Because you think about the ATO as being a mostly neutral, oh, sorry, as being mostly neutral in terms of the approach that you take to restructure in terms of the the tactic that, that you use. But in but there's some things where you'd say, look, if any credit is going to take action, it's probably going to be the ATO if you're non-compliant or if you've been involved in some sort of asset strip, stripping exercise. So that's why it's pertinent. Question 12. Are employee entitlements all paid and up to date? Okay, next issue I'd look at is the employees. Okay, so you can still go into administration even if the company's 
sorry, even if the employees have unpaid entitlements. But the small business restructuring process, the employees need to be completely up to date. So that means all the holiday and pay needs needs to be up to date. The super needs to be up to date. The wages need to be up to date. Employees are a key issue. If there is unpaid super, the uh, directors put themselves at risk of uh, significant um, action against them. So what what I'd say to any client is, is, is look, regardless of the pr- approach you take, regardless of whether you just wind up the company or you go into um, administration or you try and restructure, you need to pay the super first. So um, I'd be suggesting the super gets paid above uh, the ATO or anyone else. What about if the super is only for the director? who is struggling to make the company. So what about if the company basically just had one employee, which was the director, and the company hasn't paid this director's super? Is anybody going to scream over these unpaid super? The hurdle I would I would see is, has the director been paying themselves up to the end? So if, if the director has basically paid himself through through not through an employment process where they're basically just every year the accountant has sat down and said, okay, this is what we think you should be paid. This is our director's fees, um, 100 grand, okay, and work things out that, that, that way. That's very different to if they've got a pay slip every month and there's evidence that they should be paid uh, an amount of super that's, uh, that's owing up until the end. So I would say that the directors should pay themselves first, but I'd say that's subject to them being fully compliant in terms of having um, an employment contract where there's a pay slip and where they're paying themselves super every quarter. Because if they come after the fact and they say, look, you know, I, sh- I, I should have paid myself $100,000 last year, but I don't, don't have a single pay slip and uh, I've just been paying myself round sums and there's been no tax uh, withheld, they then work out, okay, well, I should be paying myself 10, 10% of that. I, I would say that's something that could be clawed back. We've got this overall point of view that that why is a director there? You know, one crazy thing I see is that is that sometimes directors are paid less than their employees before they uh, before they go under. You know, what's the point? Why aren't they paying themselves a wage? Why aren't they paying themselves, you know, the obligations that they should be paid to turn up every day? What you see very often is that the, the director just takes the cash out of the company as they need it. And then at the, at the quarter end, the accountant puts through a pay run that basically balances out what has been taken out and then does pay-as-you-go withholding and also books the super. When you then have this super owing, who would scream about this super not being paid? The director won't scream because he was basically paying himself and he can't. If the company gets wound up, then there's a possibility that the money they're paid to themselves could be clawed back or there could be a claim against them. This goes back to 2001 when a, an Australian company called OneTel went under, okay, and the directors paid themselves uh, millions of uh, dollars in unpaid wages, unpaid bonuses, um, et cetera, and the government created a um, a clawback power where the uh, the money could be uh, recovered. Now, there's no ceiling and there's no floor on an unreasonable director-related transfer. That's uh, what it's called. That's why I'm saying it's got to be backed up by uh, pay slips. And it's got to be backed up by a regular process whereby the director can legitimately argue that it's a wage. Because if it's basically just a cash amount paid to them and it's not backed up by pay slips, it's not backed up by a regular wage that's linked to a, a contractual obligation. It's just, it's just, hey, it's the end of the quarter and I paid myself, you know, um, $80,000 in the quarter. Unless it's backed up by anything, then there's a risk it'll be, it could be clawed, clawed back. 
Okay, so the issue is not so much that the super wasn't paid. The issue is that the uh, director is taking money out of the company. And it's not linked to it. Yes, and it's not linked to a contractual obligation. It's 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 just a di uh, a discretionary amount. And it very often is a discretionary amount because very often a director doesn't have an employment contract with its company. Yes and no. I I would suggest that if if the company is in a financially troubled position, why not set up an employment agreement? Why not just make sure that there is a wage? It doesn't need to be paid if the funds aren't there, but at least it creates a model whereby the full-time efforts of the director are recognised contractually. Okay, good. So the advice is if you are hitting rough water, make sure you have a contract between the company and you because that will cover, that will protect you from clawbacks regarding your wages. Yeah, I, I think that's a prudent approach. It doesn't mean you need to pay the pay it out if if the money isn't in the bank, but at least there's the contractual obligation there. So if if you do come come to the end and you basically like, okay, well I'm going to wind up down 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 the track, at least you've got some protection there for the monies that are paid to the uh, director that's linked to a contract. Question thirteen: Is action being pushed by suppliers? Okay, action being pushed by suppliers. Okay, so. You know, I think there's a lot less of this going on now, but in the past, what you would see is that a supplier that was owed a debt would basically go down to the Supreme Court and try and wind up the company that owed them other money, okay? I think it's a lot more expensive to do now compared to the past. So I think there's a lot less suppliers that are pushing action, okay? And that is because a lot more suppliers insist on cash payment before delivery it could be it, it could be just there's better contracting it could be there's uh, there's insurance in place for our receivables it could be because of a better uh, management of risk it could just be because it's more expensive to hire a lawyer to, to walk down to the Supreme Court and wind wind up so I, I think all those factors are at play but it's still something out there so it's something important where if if, if I'm a lawyer and I um, get get involved with a client and um, it's pretty obvious that they've got a, a supplier of theirs who they owe a large amount of money to who's trying to wind them up. That's something that needs to be dealt with. And why I say it needs to be dealt with is that if the client is going through an informal restructuring process, so they're, they're trying to use the safe harbor or they're trying to do a prepack or they're trying to do something which is informal, they may not have as much time as they think that they have, If sorry, as much time as they need if someone's trying to wind them up. If someone's trying to wind them up, they might only have, say, two months before they need to take action. Whereas if it's a restructure, they may realistically need a year or more to go through a process. So that's why looking at what your suppliers are doing is important. And if you also need ongoing supply, you might need help with whatever you do from those suppliers. So whatever materials they're supplying or whatever subcontracting staff they're providing or whatever role they play in terms of the uh, deliverable, likely going to need to negotiate with them. Question 14. Can you finalise a compromise with creditors? Okay, next is how hard is it to finalise a compromise? Okay, so small business restructuring is, is that new process is likely to be the easiest because it, it revolves around a vote which is done by email and which is first past the post. So that means that um, you just need a majority of the number of creditors to vote by value of, of debt. So you can get a, a compromise of debts based on whatever is in the plan that you've offered in a much more straightforward way than having a deed of company arrangement, which is in the uh, voluntary administration model, which would involve a vote of creditors, full investigation, reports, meetings, 
administration if it's if you if your client is owed more than a million dollars in debt that would be the the formal process that they could undertake in terms of the informal processes if you're looking to safe harbor that would involve an operational restructure it could involve um, asset transfers or it could involve a um, process of trying to sell assets but a compromise may be harder when you can then, then when you compare it to the small business restructuring approach because you're going to need to have a private trade treaty with the different entities and people that you owe uh, that you owe to so looking at the instrument that you use and the other uh, process that you take in terms of how hard is it going to be to get a, a settlement in effect um, at that point in time would be important because there's no point going down and and an administration process if you know for a fact that because you've been non-compliant the ato is going to be um, against you and the ATO is going to say, you need to file all your tax returns and we want all the, all the tax debts paid by the director. It, it just isn't going to be worth going down that path. Question 15. What does it cost to turn around? Whatever the restructuring process you, you look at, how much is it going to cost? Voluntary administration is likely to be the most expensive. Small business restructuring process is likely to be very cheap. Safe harbour, prepacks, that type of informal approach is difficult to price and it depends on the length of the sorry the, the length in time of the process you want to go through and the types of things you want to do in terms of an operational sense. If you can do the small business restructuring process, I'd, I'd be thinking about that first. If you're forced to do an, an administration, I'd be looking at it and doing the due diligence before you commenced it just to make sure it's the right approach because it can be very um, expensive. Question 16. What expertise is needed? Expertise. Okay, so the due diligence process is something that I always raise with clients because one thing I've seen in the past is people jump into things. They say, okay, we're going to go into um, administration or we're going to do a restructure or we're going to do something, but they don't spend the time before they're required to make a commitment to actually analyze prospects of our success. So the type of expertise you need, okay, well, you can have an accountant, okay, you can have your uh, public practice um, accountant, you can have an insolvency account so you can have an IP okay who, who can come in you can have an insolvency lawyer you could have an operational consultant depending on the the industry that you're in you can have a marketing consultant so I'd be I'd have a think okay well you've gone through the overall um, issues you face you start to think about the tactics you're going to use the next thing I think about is okay what type of expertise do I need now uh, the niche that I'm in is providing a service to clients that can't afford a top-tier firm, top-tier law firm, and a top-tier um, accounting firm. Okay, so that means they come to me, and there's plenty of other consultants out there that do the operational work. So they do a bit of the accounting, they do a bit of the law, they think about the the, the operational issues that the uh, client they have is going to face. So the bad news is is that Unlike, say, in other states, there's no accepted process of what type of person you need to hire, what type of expert you need. It's unlikely you could just hire one person who could fill whatever role that you need because they've got to be a lawyer, an accountant, an industry expert. Uh, they've got to have some some idea about marketing and, uh, and operations and help you test the uh, the ideas you've got. So there's no point doing this if you're dealing with a director who's who's depressed, he's got problems with alcohol, effectively saying, look, you are the linchpin here. You need to effectively marshal everything. You need to marshal our resources. You need to do it all on your own. 
it's probably going to be that they need someone to help them with due diligence in advance, uh, negotiation, and also helping to give effect to whatever the restructure is that they want to push through. Question 17. Which process is the quickest? In terms of the process, speed is important. Small business restructuring process is basically six weeks in total. Administration starts at six weeks and can, and can continue, depending on how long uh, the docker takes, depending on how long it takes to, so it depends on the number of adjournments that you can get along, along the way as well. So I, I see these processes as uh, relatively quick, okay? Uh, now, compared to the rest, rest of the world, they're fast, okay? In the States, uh, the Chapter um, 11 process is um, 180 days. Okay, so in Australia, we're relatively fast, but speed is important because when you go back a step, you think, okay, well, angry creditors, the reputational risk, the cost of uh, professional advisors, when you add all this up, the faster the process, the better the outcome. Because even if it fails, you want it to fail in a hurry so that it doesn't cost you as much. The small business restructuring process was brought in to try and speed this process up even further. And with that, you're looking at 20 days to do a plan and another two weeks to basically get a vote. So that's, that's, that's about as fast as you can get. And that's where there is less than a million dollars in debt. You know, it's overall important because if you're trying to advise someone and you know, they've got no idea how long this is going to take. You don't have to say, look, stop. Let's just have a think, think, think about this. Uh, don't forget, you're going to have to keep paying people a wage while this is going on. You have to keep your staff. You're going to have to keep suppliers on board. You have to pay your mortgage at home. You're going to have to, you know. So so the length of the process is something critical to think through. If the company is going to collapse anyway, if there's no way that a restructure can be undertaken, if there's no way the creditors are going to vote for you because they're so angry at you, it may not be worth starting the process in the first first place. Question 18. Which option gives creditors the best return? Okay, this is something that comes down the list, and that's the return to the people you owe to, so the creditors. The irony is, is that as a, a lawyer acting for directors, this is the last thing I think think, think about, really. I, I, I think about uh, what's important for the client, what's important for the directors, how much goodwill can they save? How long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? Is it going to work, et cetera? But at, at some point in time, the cre- creditors are, are going to want to know what's in it for them. The reality is there's going to be very little that, that they get from whichever process. It could be $0.05 cents in the dollar. It could be $0.10 cents in the dollar. Okay, It could, could be less. It could be zero. But that would be the next thing I would work on because you'd be thinking, okay, well, my own view in Australia is that uh, the prioritization of the returns is is less important because what you're trying to do is you're trying to save people's jobs. You're, gonna try, you're trying to save an enterprise. You're trying to save the productive capacity of um, Australia and just making sure it's in the hands of people that can use it and that the returns in terms of asset sales, et cetera, are probably going to be low, low anyway. But if you're going to want to have a narrative that is persuasive, there's got to be some return in Australia. If it's zero, then you're running the risk of things falling apart down another track of someone come, coming after it. Question 19. Which option poses the greatest risk to directors? Okay, so insolvent trading is important in that it's still illegal in um, Australia. So if you're a director and you decide to continue to trade whilst the company is insolvent, so it's, it's got an endemic shortage of working capital, there's just no way it's going to turn, turn around. But you keep trading, you keep building up big tax debt, what you owe employees grows, there's a risk you could be sued 
Now it's low. It would be contingent upon the company also being wound up. So the so the turnaround would need to fail, uh, but it's still a risk there. That would depend on asset pools. There's got to be some assets there that that can be sold, or if if you if you own assets in your own name, people might look to go after you just because they they think they can recover money off you, or it could be because the ATO because you've been non-compliant, and a case officer in the ATO decides, okay, well we're going to fund this, or we're going to support action against you because of the high level of non-compliance. In terms of overall uh, statistics, it's very unlikely in a, in a, um, in Australia that when you wind up a company that that the directors will face any form of post appointment action. It's very unlikely. Most people are compliant. They file their tax returns. Uh, there is enough money to take out of the company, or there, sorry, there isn't enough money in the company to take take it out. There isn't a lot of, lot of assets there by the time it gets wound up. So um, some assets have been sold, or some assets have been used. So because of compliance, because of um, a lack of asset strip, stripping, it's going to be very unlikely that's, that anyone's going to come, come after the uh, directors. But that would be the last thing I'd ask. I'd say, well, okay, well, if you do do something here, if you do restructure and transfer assets or you do set up a new entity or, or, or do something, how much risk is there? You know, you don't want to go out of the frying pan and into the fire. You, you don't want to put your house at risk unless you actually understand the risk and decide to take it. I hope it's been a useful exercise for um, me to go through the types of questions that I ask when someone comes in the door, says, I need an insolvency lawyer and I need someone to talk to about my transport company or building company or something that's basically facing um, a catastrophic collapse. These are the questions that I go through. My objective is to write them down, talk about them and help the accountants that are, that, that are the front line of this to be able to um, understand the process that I go through to help them to know whether or not they can do it or whether they can pass it on to another accountant or to a lawyer and know the point that they need to do it at. Welcome back. So it is never just about numbers, but about a whole lot of issues. In the next episode, episode 366, let's drill deeper into one specific comment Ben made when he said, There's a model where a lot of tax agents are just suggesting to their clients, look, don't go through the formal external administration process. What you can do is just not pay the ASIC fees and then ASIC will deregister the company so you don't need to go through the external administration process. So next week, let's look at the deregistration through ASIC as a way out for insolvent companies. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.